You're listening to the Belmar Church Sermon Podcast. For more information about Belmar or to see our upcoming events, visit belmarchurch.com. Maybe think back with me to maybe it was the first day at a new school. Or maybe for you it was the first day on the job or going to some social event where you had some anxiety because you didn't really know anybody. Maybe it was moving into the dorms and you didn't know your roommate or uh, some other circumstance like that. We all have those and have had those situations in our past. I went off to college the very first college class I was ever scheduled to go to, I skipped. That should not surprise you if you know me. But here's the reason. I, was, I wasn't late heading to that class, but I got lost on my way, and by the time I found it, it had already started. And I remember there was two wooden doors there, and they had little uh, windows in the doors, and I looked in, and it was one of those classrooms where the professor was right there, and then it was kind of those stadium style, and there was about 100 kids in there, and I went, nope, I'll catch that next time. Uh, because I was embarrassed. And I'm not saying that was right or wrong. I Actually, you know, it was the first day, we just got our syllabuses, and it was probably all right, or syllabi, or ever. I, see, I skipped that day, and now I don't know. But... I didn't want to walk in and have the professor look at me and all those kids look at me and then me go, can I sit here? You know, I just was embarrassed. And we can all think of those times. Maybe you got invited to a party and you only knew one person. You know, whatever it is. We've all been in those situations. And we all have these fears they like, we'll walk in and everybody will just look at us and go, you don't belong here. And you're like, I know. That's exactly what happened to the Apostle Paul. Before he was known as the Apostle Paul, he was Saul. And he went to church and everybody was like, you don't belong here. In Acts chapter 9, we've been going through the conversion of Paul. And Acts 9 starts by telling us that Saul is this man who hates the church. Now later, the Lord would change his name to Paul. But here he's known as Saul. And, and he arrested those who followed Jesus and he persecuted them in Jerusalem. And then he gets authority to expand the, the, the persecution to Damascus. And on his way to Damascus, the Lord intervenes with a bright light that knocks him to the ground and Jesus himself speaks to him. And Saul realizes that everything he thought he, he knew was wrong. He thought that in persecuting the, the followers of Jesus, he was doing what would please God when in fact he was working against God. He thought that these people who believed in Jesus as the Messiah were in error and that Jesus was a false Messiah, but in fact, Jesus proved that he was God, that he was the Messiah. And so Saul blinded goes into Damascus. 
Ananias comes and lays his hands on him and restores his sight, and he's baptized. And he's there in Damascus. He's preaching. He's confounding those who spoke against Jesus. And he's blowing everybody's mind because they had all heard about Saul. Even Ananias, when, when God gave him a vision and called him to go uh, to, to meet Saul, he was like, I've heard of that guy. And it's not good. That was Saul's reputation. And now in Acts 29, or excuse me, in Acts chapter 9, verse 26, Saul is going back to the town he had lived in before, Jerusalem. And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles, and he declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road, that he had spoken to him, and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. So he was with them at Jerusalem, coming in and going out. And he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Hellenists, but they attempted to kill him. When the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him out to, to, to Tarsus, then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified. And walking in the fear and the comfort, the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. Acts chapter 9 and verse 26 says, Would Saul had come to Jerusalem? Now Saul had been to Jerusalem. It was, it was just outside of Jerusalem that Saul had held the cloaks and been consenting to the stoning of Stephen, who was the, one of the first deacons in the church of Jerusalem. It was at Jerusalem where Saul had gone and, and sought out followers of Jesus and drugged them before the high priest and, and the chief priest and then thrown them into jail. Saul had lived in Jerusalem. He had studied in Jerusalem. He was known in Jerusalem, but not as a follower of Jesus, as a persecutor of those who follow Jesus. And now he comes to Jerusalem. And the, the Greek, the original language here of verse number 26, when he says he came to Jerusalem and he tried to join the disciples, this isn't like a one-time deal. This is that he kept trying to join followers of Jesus, and they kept rejecting him. And I thought about that. And I thought, why was that? On the surface, you can understand it, right? You're like, well, this guy was arresting Christians. He was, he was persecuting them. They don't really want him in church. But the reputation of Saul as a persecutor in Jerusalem spread to Damascus. Surely they had heard some rumors of his conversion and his preaching in Damascus here in Jerusalem. And yet they still rejected him. And I thought about that. And I thought sometimes we say we understand the power of God we know that God can do miraculous things, but when he starts to do miraculous things, we don't always believe him. 
We're not going to take the time this morning. I loaded it in the computer, but you can skip over Acts chapter 12. Uh, There's about 16 verses there, and we're not going to read all of them, but the story in Acts chapter 12 is one of persecution. It says that uh, the authorities, and I believe it was Herod, I should have read it, see? It was Herod took and he killed James, the brother of John. James and John were brothers that were disciples of Jesus. And Herod took James and he killed him. And the Bible says that politically, Herod looked at that and the majority of the people were in favor of that, so he arrested Peter. Now he had previously arrested James and killed him. Now he arrests Peter. What do you think is going to happen? And the Bible says that there was a group of believers having a prayer meeting. They were in a house and they were praying. And Peter was under heavy guard. He was actually chained to guards in a room and there were guards outside of that room watching and the door was locked. And an angel came in and opened the door and removed the shackles and none of the guards woke up and woke Peter up and Peter wasn't sure whether he was in a dream or not. Now I don't know if that was because Peter was a heavy sleeper or he wasn't believing that God was going to rescue him. But the angel leads Peter out of the prison. Every locked door opens and he brings him out into the city, into the street at night and then the angel is gone. And Peter is there in the cool night air and he realizes this is no dream, this is deliverance. And he immediately goes to a house of of one of the Christians that would often host gatherings. They were there having a prayer meeting and Peter knocks on the door. And a girl named Rhoda comes to the door and sees that it's Peter and doesn't let him in and runs back and tells everybody. And then you know what it says in verse 26? Is it verse 26 or verse 16? Verse 16. You could ask Jason. My numbers are messed up this week. If you downloaded the notes, there's going to be some verses you're like, how is he going to do verse 36 through 27? (laughs) We are exploring the space-time continuum today. In verse 16, it says, and they were astonished. What were they gathered for? What do you think they were praying about? James, one of the leaders in the church, had died. Peter, the guy who preached on the day of Pentecost and thousands got saved, if not the main leader in the church, one of the main leaders, was arrested. What do you think they're praying about? They're praying about the deliverance of Peter. And then Peter comes knocking on the door, and they can't believe it. How much of the time do we sit and ask God to do something, and then when he starts to do it, we go, can't believe it. 
Maybe that was the reason. Maybe it was fear. But I think there was an element of the church that just thought, can God really save that guy? I mean, I know that God saved me. But can God really change the heart of Saul? God forbid that Belmar Church ever has the attitude of can God really save that person? Can God really change the heart and life of that person? God is in the heart transformation business. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. He is an entirely new being. Old things are passed away. All things become new. You can look in the Old Testament. You can look in the New Testament. God says, I'll take a heart of stone. I'll give you a heart of flesh. God says, I will renew your mind. I will change the very way you think. God desires to completely transform us from people who are destined to spend eternity in judgment to people who are made in the image of God, of Jesus himself, and will spend eternity in heaven. This is what God desires to do. And God forbid if we ever stop believing that he is in the heart and the life transformation business. They rejected Saul. But Barnabas, Acts 9.27, took him and brought him to the disciples and he declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. It took this guy Barnabas What a guy this was. You know Barnabas wasn't even his name. Barnabas is his nickname. And yet all throughout the New Testament, he's only called Barnabas. I used to coach basketball and football, and I coached high school football for a number of years. And on one particular team, when I coached at this one school, I had an assistant coach, and he gave every kid a nickname. Every kid had a nickname, and it could be related to their own name. It could be related to some obscure event. We had a kid, his nickname was Rats, because we all had T-shirts, and he had a pet rat, and the rat ate his shirt. The corner of his shirt, of his sleeve was messed up because his rat ate on it, so he was Rats. Then his little brother played it for us, so he was Mouse. That's the way nicknames work. One day I was with all my coaches and we were filling out nominations for all conference and I filled in one of our running backs and I filled in his name and one of our coaches said, who's that? I said, that's our running back. He goes, that's not his name. I said, no, that is his name. You're just used to his nickname. Barnabas was this guy's nickname. You know why? We find it in Acts chapter four. This is the first time Barnabas is introduced. 
Acts chapter four, that God is working in the church. And the last two verses say this. And Joseph, who was also named Barnabas, by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. He's first introduced in this great act of of kindness, of, of charity. He has a possession. He sells it, takes the money, and just gives it to the disciples and says, use it however you want. And the disciples said, you are got, you got a new nickname, Barnabas. And everybody knew that Barnabas meant son of encouragement. Never is he referred to in Scripture again as Joseph. That was his name. I, I imagine that at some point, Later, Barnabas would be traveling with the Apostle Paul. They'd be starting churches. Maybe they were near Cyprus. Some old woman walks into the church that morning, says, I'm here to see my son Joseph. And everybody goes, who's that? And then she goes, Barnabas? And everybody goes, oh, yeah, Barnabas. We love him. That's not in the Bible. That's just a little extra thing that I think of sometimes when I... My mind wanders. He's always referred to as Barnabas, the son of encouragement. And so Barnabas took Saul. You know what I think he did? I think when the church gathered, Barnabas put his arm around Saul. He walked down and he sat right on the front row. And said, this is my friend Saul. It might not have happened like that, but it happened something like that. Because the Bible says he took them, he forced acceptance within the church. I've already talked about the fact that God is in the transformational business. But here's what happens sometimes. We have our own little subculture in church, don't we? I grew up in church. My mother and father were followers of Jesus, our father, followers of Jesus. I went to church as a little kid. I learned the Bible stories. I learned the songs. I learned the motions to the songs. And at some point, I came to be a believer in Jesus too. And I grew up in that. I know, and then I went to college to, be, to study to be a, a minister. I know all the ologies and these and thous, and, the, and it's like a whole secret code language. And then what can happen is somebody can come into our group that doesn't know the code, they don't speak the language. They don't, I mean, they stand when they're supposed to sit. They kneel when we're never supposed to kneel. We're Baptists. I mean, I don't. They do something that they're not supposed to do. And what do we do? Well, we're good church people. We all glare at them. Maybe we don't accept them. You with me? Why? 
oh, well, that person doesn't look like they belong here. The people that don't belong here are the people that need to be here. Listen, if we're going to have a tagline at a church, that should be it. The people that don't belong here are the people that need to be here. The people that don't know Jesus ought to come to a place where they can find Jesus. And you know what we ought to be as a church? A place they can find Jesus. So the non-church people, the people that don't look right, those are the people we want here. And then you know what we ought to expect? We ought to expect that God is going to transform their lives. We ought to be praying for it and working for it. And we ought to understand this. We're all in the middle of that. You know who's got it all figured out and is exactly in the, in the image of Jesus? Nobody that's living. Matter of fact, you're here today, there is a part of your life that God is not pleased with and he would like to change it to make it more like Jesus. Amen, preacher. Some of you are like, well. No, that's true. Otherwise, you just walk on water and feed us all with a few fishes and bread, right? But that's not what's going to happen. We're going to hand out turkeys and you're going to have to bring stuff next week. Because I'm not that much like Jesus either. We're all in that process. And so when somebody comes into our midst that seems like they don't belong, they're just in a different part of that process. And Barnabas, the son of encouragement, took Saul and brought him to the disciples. So he was with them at Jerusalem, Acts 9, 28, coming in and going out. He became part of them. He arrived, he left just like all of them. And he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Hellenists or the Greeks, but they attempted to kill him. There's a pattern here with Saul. God uses him in a mighty way and some people respond to that and they're changed and other people don't like that message and they want to kill him. It happened in Damascus and they let him over the wall in a basket and it happened here in Jerusalem. And when the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him out to Tarsus. They helped him escape. Who helped him escape? Look at Acts chapter nine and verse 30. If you would, put that on the screen for me. Acts 9.30. They brought him down to Caesarea and sent him out to Tarsus. Who did? The brethren. The church. His brothers and sisters in Jesus. See, at the beginning of this passage, in verse number 26, he's rejected. He tries and tries to join, but they won't have him. By verse 30, his brothers. What changed? 
they accepted him, their heart, Barnabas, played a part. When we come together as a church, you might think we're here so that you can sit there and the band can be here. And they can lead in worship. And that's one of the things that we do. And then you may think, well now, God gives all of his wisdom to the preacher and then he gives it to us. It does not work that way. If it does, I need to keep a little bit more of it sometimes. Yes, part of what we do is the preaching of God's word. That's biblical. And it's important to come and learn because in, as an imperfect man, tries to expand upon the perfect word of God, the Holy Spirit comes in and makes application to our hearts and lives. But that is not the only reason we gather. The Bible says when we gather, we're to exhort or build up one another. You realize you might be here today to be Barnabas to somebody else. But God forbid that you are just in too much of a hurry or you really need to talk to somebody else about what's wrong with your cat or I don't know. You know, sometimes we get so focused on the wrong things. But God used Barnabas and the church at Jerusalem became brothers with Saul. They saved his life. And now we get to the point. The last verse, verse 31, says this. Then, when, after they rejected him, but then when they accepted him, then when he became a brother, then when he was preaching boldly, then when they helped him escape, then the churches throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and were edified. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. When the church accepted and when there was unity within the church, God began to do an amazing work. Jesus had prophesied about this. It wasn't just the church at Jerusalem. But think about the churches that begin to be affected. First, God did a work at the church in Damascus. Because they were living in fear of Saul, but the first time they meet him, he's a new convert. They see firsthand the, the power of God on him. They see firsthand how he speaks with grace and with power. They see what God is doing, and that church is encouraged. Then he goes down to Jerusalem, and at first he's rejected. But eventually, through Barnabas, he's accepted, and they get to see what God is doing. And imagine the encouragement that was. Imagine if you're sitting in church with a guy who had drug you away to be arrested, but now he's saying, I'm sorry, I was wrong, you were right, Jesus is the Messiah. You think that would have an effect on the spirit of the church? And so when they faced persecution, they said, hey, we're gonna send you on somewhere else. Then, 
God began to do a work in the churches across that region. Jesus has said, you will, be, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, Acts 1.8, and you will be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. When Jesus said that, he was really speaking in, in concentric circles. He said, listen, you're going to be witnesses to me in Lakewood and all of Jefferson County and the Denver metro area and in Colorado and the western United States and the United States of America and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And I imagine that, that those few believers who heard that in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8 when they were there before the day of Pentecost and the, and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, there was just a few believers there. And then you know what Jesus did? He ascended into heaven and left them alone. And they were probably thinking, how's this gonna happen? But then the Holy Spirit comes and Peter begins to preach. And there's persecution. Saul and Herod and, and James is killed. But God begins to do a work. And the churches in Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and were edified, were built up. And it says that they were multiplied. I want us to kind of wrap this up by looking at this very last sentence. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. He says first that they had the fear of the Lord. Now that's something that I think sometimes we, we struggle with in our society. The fear of the Lord. It's like, well, we shouldn't fear God. God is love. God cares for us. And we, we like the, the personal loving God, but why should we fear him? God is love, and God is a personal God. But God is a mighty God. You go back in the Old Testament, and we'll not take the time to read it this morning, but God gives a vision to Isaiah of God himself. The Bible says that, that Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up. And, and it describes the angels flying around and there's smoke and there's lightning and the building is shaken. And Isaiah's response is, woe is me. Because compared to Almighty God, he realized the insignificance of himself. And that is the fear of the Lord. We lack the fear of the Lord when we lack a proper view of who God is, especially compared to who we are. Because if we're not careful, we can begin to think that we are pretty good. And then we might question who God is or why God works in a certain way. That's because we don't have the proper vision of God. 
It's not that we're terrified of God. It's not that we walk on eggshells around him. But to understand the awesomeness and the mightiness of God is to have a godly fear of the Lord. Psalm 111 and verse 10 says this, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do his commandments. His praise endures forever. When we see God, then we begin to have some godly wisdom. When we see God, then we will obey his commandments. When we see God, then we will have the fear of the Lord. This is the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs chapter 9 and verse 10 says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs 19 verse 7 says the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Proverbs 22 and verse 4 says this, By humility and the fear of the Lord are riches and honor and life. I was thinking about that this week, and I would encourage you, you can do just a little study on the fear of the Lord, but start with this verse right here, Proverbs 22, 4. Who doesn't want riches and honor and life? I mean, that about covers it, doesn't it? Well, how do, how do you get that? By humility and the fear of the Lord. Listen, if you get a vision of God, you'll get humility and the fear of the Lord. And when the church got it, in walking in the fear of the Lord, they were multiplied. What do you think gave him that fear? Could it be the testimony of the one who persecuted God, transformed to be a mighty preacher of the gospel of Jesus? Not only did they have the fear of the Lord, but they had the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 9, verse 31, the end of that says, walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. Second Corinthians chapter one and verse three says this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. And then listen to what Paul, formerly Saul, writing to the church at Corinth that he helped establish and start. Listen to what he says. He says, the God of all comfort who comforts us in all our tribulation that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as the suffering of Christ abounds in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. Now when you read that, that's a lot of comfort. You're like, God comforts us. He's the God of comfort. He comforts us so we can comfort others with the comfort with which we were comforted to be comforted. And how much wood could a woodchuck chuck if a woodchuck? Right? Like if you're reading it, 
and you're easily distracted, you kind of go, what is he talking about? But this is what Paul said. He said, when we're in tribulation, God is a God of comfort. And he comforts us. He helps us through it. He gives us courage and strength and and, and he comforts us. Listen, there's, there's great comfort and encouragement when you don't have to go through something alone. I mean, have you ever thought about the actual what takes place physically sometimes with a kid? Like, think about a kid. He's riding his bike. He falls. He sprains his wrist. Now, if you have a sprained wrist, and if you're a doctor, you can, or a nurse, or just a mom, you can probably correct me when I'm done. But basically, you have a sprained wrist, you can like maybe take some Tylenol, maybe a little ice, maybe you can wrap it up, but essentially, you just gotta like deal with it till it heals. But you fall, you're in pain, little kid cries, what do they want? Their mom or dad. In my children's case, always their mom. And mom would come, and even if she didn't know what to do, she'd hold it, she'd rub their back. Does that actually make the wrist feel better? Not physically, but you feel better. Why? Because somebody's there to comfort you. Remember, we, I remember getting a scrape, and I tell my mom, blow on it. <laughs> I don't know if that did anything or not, but I felt better. Man, little kids, they go through that stage where they want a Band-Aid for everything. <laughs> some, of you are, some of you are like, we're in that stage. I'm buying them at Costco. Does it make them feel better? I don't know, but they do. Why? It's comfort. God doesn't just comfort us in ways that don't really do anything. He's God. He'll walk through those those tribulations, those difficulties with us. And as he does, he doesn't just do it for our comfort. But he does it so that we can comfort others. When the Bible says that the church was in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, I like that. Because what it tells us is the church needed comfort. See, if we're not careful, we look at things sometimes like a fairy tale. We think, oh, there was this church in Jerusalem. Saul was persecuting them. God converted Saul. Everything was okay. They lived happily ever after. That's not how it happened. James was killed. Other disciples were killed. Believers were still being persecuted, but the church was multiplying. God was doing a work. They had peace even in the middle of some difficulties. Why? Because they were walking in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. 
Here's the problem sometimes with life. And, and I get this way. I think, God, if I could just get this one circumstance in my life, if I could just get that taken care of, everything else would be okay. But it never works that way. Because as soon as this gets taken care of, then something else pops up. That's life. We're always going to have struggles. We're always going to have difficulties that we face. What we need is to walk in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And God desires to give us that comfort, but not just for ourselves, but that we might comfort others. There is great power in somebody coming alongside and being a comfort. When I think about this, I often think about my own family. My wife has a twin sister. And I guess it's been about 18 years ago My brother-in-law and my nephew were killed in a car accident. My wife's twin sister's husband and oldest son. They were riding in a vehicle. My brother-in-law was a little league coach. His assistant coach was with him. Two 10-year-old boys were in the back. Both of them, all four of them were killed when they were rear-ended by an 18-wheeler. It was a horrible situation. I was a youth pastor at the time. All four of those people were members of our church. We had back-to-back funerals for fathers and sons in the, in the same week. The assistant coach was a firefighter. We had a firefighter's funeral with the bagpipes and, and, and all of the departments represented. And, and, and this man and his child, we buried them and then my, my brother-in-law was a Texas state trooper, and so we had this law enforcement funeral with all of the police and, and the different representatives there for my brother-in-law and my nephew. And my, my sister-in-law and her two niece, uh, my two nieces, her two daughters, were, were left. And I remember my sister-in-law saying this. She said, I take a lot of encouragement because she's facing raising her daughters by herself. And that challenge was, was very heavy on her. But she said, I look at you and your mother because my father died when I was 18 and my mom finished raising me because I was not done and my 15-year-old brother, and my six-year-old brother. And she said, I see you guys, and I see the men that you are, and it's not the same circumstance, but it just gives me hope. You know what it gave her? Comfort. Didn't make all her problems go away. But it gave her encouragement. It gave her comfort. God comforts us in our tribulation so that we can comfort others. And if we don't do that, if we don't take that final step, 
we, we don't do all that God has for us. And finally this morning, it says that the churches in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit were multiplied. God began to do a miraculous work. I want to close this morning with two verses from Matthew chapter 18. If you had a a red letter Bible where the words of Jesus were in red, all of these verses would be in red. Because Jesus said this, again I say to you, that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Let's pray this morning. Our gracious God in heaven, Lord, I pray that you would give us as a church unity and agreement of heart. God, that we desire to see people transformed from darkness into light. God, that we desire to see you take those who might persecute the church to those who would preach the good news of Jesus. God, we should all be in that transformative process. God, help us to be a church that accepts those who come into our midst, that encourages and comforts those who come into to Belmar Church. God, help us to be a church that walks in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And as we do, God, we believe that you will multiply us, that you will use us to accomplish your will in Lakewood and across this region and around the world. In your son's holy, mighty, and precious name we pray. Amen.